just because this is the way things are going doesn't mean it's the way things have to be. And maybe this group needs to break up. Maybe this thing needs to dissolve. Maybe it's actually meant to be three organizations. Maybe um, patriarchy is so deeply entrenched in the center that you're going to have to decide if you're willing to fight that, you know, if you want to, if you want this organization to exist. There's often something that people know already to be true and that they know they need to talk about and that they don't know how to talk about or they're really scared to talk about. I love saying those things out loud. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Adrienne Marie Brown is a doula, a community organizer, and the author of several books of nonfiction, including Emergent Strategy, Pleasure Activism, We Will Not Cancel Us, and a novella called Grievers. She also co-hosts the podcasts How to Survive the End of the World and Octavia's Parables. She came on the show to talk about a moment pretty early in her career when she was still young, and she first had to walk away from an organizing project that wasn't living up to its values. She talked about that moment of disappointment and bravery and how it's become a guidepost for the ideas she's now using to shape big national conversations about activism and transformative justice. We also talked about her love of Octavia Butler and her commitment to what she calls visionary fiction. The first time I was like in a professional setting where um, I thought that we were all deeply aligned in our values and then stuff kept happening that I was like shocked by, you know, and I was like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I believe in. This feels like it's perpetuating the things that we're fighting. And the threshold moment was that I, I had to stand up for what I believed in um, with, with the likelihood that it was at the cost of belonging to this group that I had helped create. You know, I, I felt a lot of you know, a, a large sense of, if not ownership, like um, stewardship, you know, I felt like I I really like helped with the ideation of this. And mm-hmm. now I'm going to, am I abandoning it? Because I have this perspective, this point of view. And basically, you know, it was something where the, one of the people that we were organizing with was a white guy who was a funder darling, you know, someone that the the, the realm of philanthropy just loved and kept giving him resources. And we were all trying to work together. And in the middle of the night, <laughs> like we would come up with all these elaborate, beautiful plans. And then in the middle of the night, he would get on the phone with, you know, this donor or that donor, or whoever. And when we would come in the next day, things would have all changed. And kept being like, what are you doing? You know, what's happening in the middle of the night here? Um, and is there any way we could stop doing that? It feels like it's not really accountable to like this larger collective thing we're trying to do. Um, but he kept doing it, right? Because he was he was getting huge accolades from the philanthropy world <laughs> to, to do exactly that. Not surprising. But the threshold wow. moment for me was like, I had to stand in front of the, at that time, the board and other staff people. Multiple times I had to stand there and say, you know, I don't trust this man. I don't trust the decisions he's making. 
about the future of this organizing and it feels liberal you know it feels um it feels like um softening something that we we have been telling everyone we're moving in a revolutionary direction and that we're really trying to create some change but if if we follow what he's doing it deeply compromises the values and i remember how it felt in my body to stand there and to feel so alone and to feel like i had to tell the truth um I felt grief and I felt certainty, like, uh, you know, a deep cert. I was like, this is the right thing to do. Uh, it does not feel good, <laughs> you know, but it's the right thing to do. And yeah, that, that's, that viscerally is what came to mind um, when I saw that this yeah. is what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Can I back you up and ask what the organization was and how you had kind of poured yourself into it yeah, in advance of this moment? Totally. So it was the League of Pissed Off Voters or League of Young Voters. And um, we, you know, I had been kind of... Such a good name. Yeah. It was so... I mean, we had a lot <laughs> of good names. We put out... I'd been recruited to help author a book called How to Get Stupid White Men Out of Office. <laughs> and... um which made it even more ironic. Uh, but it was, yeah, I had poured myself into both the editing of that book and then touring that book, which was unexpected. Um, cause there were like, I think 10, 12 authors on the book, but I ended up being one of the main people on the book tour. I learned a lot about what I could do in front of a group of people. You know, I like something happened when I would get in front of people, my fear fell away and, the importance of, of what I needed to share came front and center. And so I had poured myself in to not only my own organizing work, but, but like recruiting women of color, recruiting other people of color into it. You know, it's just like, it's really important that we figure out the balance between electoral organizing and community organizing. And I felt like, you know, we were really up to something, something that felt new, something that felt original. Um, it, you know, in my political study since then, I think it's actually a precipice that each generation comes to and revisits, <laughs> you know, it's like, it, mm. is it more important to do the electoral work? Is it more important to do, um, you know, revolutionary work is, you know, like what matters and it's actually better to have a complex analysis on that than to try to either or. But at the time it felt like it was a revolutionary thing to try to have a complex analysis around it. So I was pouring myself in, pouring myself into that work. And at what point in that process did it become clear that there was a problem with this one member? Yeah, I think it was maybe, well, very early on, people were giving me like, hey, <laughs> be careful. Um, you know, I didn't know much about how philanthropy worked at that time. I didn't understand that there's, a lot of, you know, the sort of funder darlings who are able to say things that inspire philanthropy, get them really excited, um, that may or may not be rooted in collective ideation or, um, you know, strategy that has been uh, outlined together with others. And so I started to have a real um, passionate sense of like, if the community is not involved in thinking and ideating and figuring this out, how are we any different from anyone else who's who's just trying to use people? <laughs> you know, so 
it it really started to click for me and and I felt very clearly like we're not supposed to you know just be getting people excited to vote and then having them settle for whatever the Democrats want to offer. This is supposed to be something that is postpartisan and kind of beyond the current political paradigm and really gets us thinking. And what was the moment that you realized that you were going to really need to speak up and speak to the board about the problem that you were seeing? Yeah. So it was kind of a, um, I think it was like a two or three part moment. (laughs) So the first thing that happened was one of my comrades um, started doing a sit-in in the office where she was like, okay, if you're calling our donors and changing all of our plans at night, then I'm not leaving the office at night. I'll be here at night. And (laughs) so there won't be any time for you to be by yourself making these calls, right? And she was this like very powerful, high femme, brilliant organizer. Um, And so I just remember seeing her like coming in one morning and she was there in her sweatpants. And she was like, yeah, I'm not leaving if he doesn't leave. He's, you know, like, and I just felt so protected by it. You know, I was like, wow, like, this is, you know, this is what it means to stand up for our beliefs. This is what it means to like stand in the way of of shady stuff going down. So that was kind of the first thing. It was like, sh- this person's willing to stand up. Like I should also be willing to stand up. And then I had hired um, different women of color, people of color to come and work in the space. And I mean, we were inspired, you know, like we were calling out the Asada chant. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. You know, we would be together, these massive groups really feeling like we're making history. And it was thrilling. But then one of the young women that I had brought in was fired in a way that felt really shady to me and really unethical. And I was told about it in a way that also felt shady and unethical, like at a gathering um, I was like pulled off to the side and told that she was going to be let go. And she was there. And I was just like, this is, I, I knew, you know, she had just gone through a lot of personal crises. And I was like, it is the most irresponsible thing that we could do by this person who has given so much to this organization for us to let her go in this moment, you know? Um, and, and it felt driven by if you're only looking at this organization through the numbers that we can move, if you're only looking at this organization um, through this campaign lens, then sure, you'll let her go. But if you're looking at it through a humane lens of what we care about, like she deserves another chance. She's brilliant and she was having a hard time and she's young. And so I was so disappointed by that decision-making and how corporate it felt, how patriarchal it felt. And yeah, so I had that moment of like, I can't, I can't sit by and let this happen to her and stay here myself, you know, and I can't not speak up about it. Um, And, you know, I still can't remember, like I was trying to remember as I was prepping for this, I was trying, I was like, what did I actually say? Like, I remember standing in the boardroom. I remember looking at the faces of all these people who I admired and looked up to and wanted to be taken seriously by. Um, And I remember speaking from my heart. I remember quivering. I remember, you know, right before it was time to go in, we were in some random office building space (laughs) that was not like where we normally worked. And I just remember looking around the space and how cold it felt, you know. Um, 
that it was just like this white room. And I was like, this is, this is, this is the moment. I'm just going to have to be more honest than I've ever been. And um, I also remember years later, and it really was years later, people coming up to me and telling me how brave I had been and how much they were like deeply inspired by how I showed up in that moment, which that's not how it felt. (laughs) You know, it felt really scary. It felt really overwhelming. It felt really like this is my career, you know? Um, And I want to say it's not the first threshold moment for me. It's not the only one. Like this has been actually an important part of my becoming has been figuring out those times when I can't sit by and when I have to speak up and um, so I start, you know, by this point, I think I, I had some familiarity with that thing that can happen in your belly, um, when it's time, but I remember it, I remember it very viscerally, like it was time to go in and slay some dragons, you know, what happened? Well, I went into this boardroom, I made this presentation and a lot of folks were like, you know, thank you. Like there's a lot of surprise expressed that we're going to look into it, you know? Um, and then I believe. I believe that like nothing satisfying came of it. <laughs> you know, like people were all just like, okay, like we hear you. And I, re- I resigned. Um, and I, I was like, I can't, you know, I don't want to stay here if the organization's like this. And a lot of the women of color all left right at the same time, um, which is always something to look out for. That's like a good bellwether sign. <laughs> like if a lot of people mm-hmm. of color or a lot of women or a lot of people working class are all leaving at the same time, like, there's something structural happening in that space. Um, but yeah, so I went in this boardroom and I think people, I, I learned in that moment how, how privilege works. Um, you know, cause I, a lot of people were like, we see you, we hear you, we believe you, but he's the one who has access to the money. So there's nothing we can really do. And mm. it was really helpful for me to, to see that to experience that in what, what I did after that. You know, I, I went on to do a lot of organizing um, and to run other organizations and to really learn so much about what it meant to be someone who could generate resources. You know, because that, that was one of the first things that felt important to me. It was like, okay, if you have to be the one who has the ability to generate resources, then I better figure out how to do that. And, and then... Um, you know, what does it take to actually generate authentic relationships around resources? And what does it take to be a leader who's trustworthy? And a lot flowed from that experience. I guess the next question that I have is how, how that experience has rippled outward that was a sort of at the very beginning maybe not the very very beginning but it was early early in your career yeah. which has now grown so much bigger than just that that one totally experience or that one kind of work where do you where do you see its echoes i think that emergent strategy is in a lot of ways uh, me articulating the lessons from that time um, among other things but i think that emergent strategy you know, so much of emergent strategy is written from a broken heart. And I say that, <laughs> you know, that it's like, yeah. I, it's not just being like, ooh, dolphins, you know, like there's a real sense of um, 
the way humans have figured out doing society and doing community organizing is um, it's like we're so stuck in the thinking of colonialism, the thinking of capitalism, which, you know, says everything has a monetary value, which is its only value. And everything is urgent and everything can be pillaged, you know, um, everything can be branded. Like there's just this way uh, of being that to me goes so counter to what the the natural world is actually telling us um, or goes counter to the option we're being given at all times, right? To be otherwise. And emergent strategy was me looking for what does it look like to organize with integrity? You know, what does it look like to um, come into communities with listening at the forefront? Um, so I think that that threshold also showed me kind of what my leadership looks like. So if I was to describe, you know, like how I am as a leader, there's a certain degree of, hmm, I don't want to say this. It's just like a certain degree of, of the risk, like the risk of being honest that feels really crucial to how I want to show up anytime I'm in a space and what I want people to know that they can count on. You know, it's like, okay. And as a facilitator, I feel like this was always my gift or my superpower was to be able to be like, hey, like just because this is the way things are going doesn't mean it's the way things have to be. And maybe this group needs to break up. Maybe this thing needs to dissolve. Maybe it's actually meant to be three organizations. Maybe um, patriarchy is so deeply entrenched in the center that you're going to have to decide if you're willing to fight that. You know, if you want to, if you want this organization to exist, there's often something that people know already to be true and that they know they need to talk about and that they don't know how to talk about or they're really scared to talk about. I love saying those things out loud. <laughs> you know, I love, I love being able to be like, Hey, we all know this isn't, you know, um, this isn't the best we could do. And like, let's say that so that we can begin to orient towards how we improve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You write a lot about radical honesty yes. as a tool. Yes. Uh, and when I was reading, I'm trying to remember if it was when I was in one of your books that I read or in an interview with you that I listened to to prepare for this book. Uh, uh, I heard you at one point write or say that you don't any longer have maintain relationships where you don't feel like you can be completely and radically honest. That's right. I wanted to ask, how does that work for you? <laughs> that <laughs> that's such an that's such an amazing and beautiful um thing to be practicing and yet mm -hmm. uh it feel how do you how do you I guess maybe the question I'm asking more broadly is how do you balance yeah. radical honesty as an ethic and as a as a tool with the need and desire to preserve connections that can be endangered sometimes yeah, by honesty yeah. that's a great question um you know I, I will say there's a Buddhist practice that you're probably familiar with that's like asking, you know, before you speak, is this necessary? Is it true? Is it kind? And I really find that that is a helpful practice for me when it comes to the, the lifelong commitment to radical honesty, 
because it's there's never ever ever for me any interest in being unkind to anyone i i never want that and so i'm not just running around being like that dress looks horrible <laughs> you know that's not <laughs> that kind of radical honesty right it really is radical honesty about my own capacity radical honesty about my own needs radical honesty about how something lands with me what it feels like um i don't participate in relationships that cannot handle my emotional experience and that how it how it works um a lot of times is like i first have to be really self-aware and i think self-awareness is especially in the west where we're really trained kind of the opposite <laughs> i think self-awareness can be a lifelong journey and so for me that that journey is like, how am I even feeling? And my training, my socialization, um, in somatics, we call it the condition tendency. My condition tendency is to appease, you know? So appeasing is a way of saying everything's okay, even when it's not. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm okay. Don't worry about me. Um, you know, this is okay. This this circumstance is fine with me. And in this commitment around radical honesty, when I'm not okay, I have to be able to say I'm not okay. Or if I'm with people who can't hear that, I have to still be able to operate towards my own safety. I have to figure out how to get myself to a place where I can be okay. And I feel a real responsibility for that. You know, I'm like, this is no one else's job to read my mind, to figure out what my emotional needs are, <laughs> you know, um, that's not anyone else's job. I'm the one who was given that job. And my job is to feel it, experience it, and be able to express it. And, um, and I'm still learning. I feel very much like a Padawan <laughs> in, that, in that journey. Sometimes mm -hmm. it takes me weeks or months to know how I felt about something. Um, because that appease shape is at the forefront, you know? So I have to be humble <laughs> in that, you know, that I'm like, um, like a lot of times I'll feel like a twinge, you know, like, oh, I didn't really like that. I, hmm, I don't know, <laughs> you know, or I'll feel like that kind of um, ambivalence and it'll take me a while to recognize like, oh, that person was being disrespectful. That's what that feeling was, you know? Um, now, the other part of the radical honesty is around my integrity to myself. So I think a lot about this when it comes to my mental and physical health is, you know, I'm in practices related to that health. And my radical honesty, a lot of times, is just telling the truth about what I'm doing versus what I want to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I say, you know, I really, really, really don't want to nourish my inflammation in my body, but then I keep eating things that are inflammatory, right? Then being honest about that will help me to start to understand like, well, why am I self-sabotaging in that way? You know, the honesty is to, to take care of yourself. It's never, you know, I'm not honest. I'm never honest, like to shock someone. It doesn't interest me, you know? I'm always, I'm always like, I'm being honest because I, I want to understand how to be with this truth. 
How did you bring writing into your suite of practices Mm -hmm. and into your professional life? Was it an sort of, it reads to me very much like it was an outgrowth of these kinds of values. Yeah. I mean, one thing is I think I was never without the writing, you know? So like if, if you go back, I think I started, um, during the Iraq war or kind of the buildup to the Iraq war, I remember that I was starting to write these long emails that I would send to everyone in my email list. Like, you know, they're about to bomb Baghdad. Like we need to be paying attention. And I just felt like if all I can do right now is just write and make sure people even know that this is happening, you know, it felt so important that I at least at minimum do that. And I started a blog back (laughs) when um, I was on Friendster and um, (laughs) I didn't realize at the time that the way Friendster was set up was that every time you posted something, it sent alerts to everyone that you were connected to on that app. Um, (laughs) No one does that now, but every person got like a, in their inbox, Adrian just posted something. I didn't know this. I was in a commitment of, I want to learn to write 300 words a day and publish them, you know, make them public um, just to see, to build up that discipline, right? I had read somewhere like, you know, writing a certain amount, writing every single day and writing a certain amount every day is a great way to train your system. Okay. So I don't know that this is posting to everybody. And my content was my personal relationship. (laughs) (laughs) So I was writing about this person I called the heartbreaker and like having a blast writing about it really, you know, it's just like my own little, um, I guess it's kind of a sex in the city journal or something, you know? Um, And when I realized it, appalled, appalled, like horror, when I realized that what was happening was this had been going to everyone. And I was like, everyone had been reading it. Everyone had been reading it. Everyone knew like everything that was going on and thought I was so crazy. Um, And what was beautiful was I was immediately like, I'm so sorry, everybody. I've been like bombarding you with this and I'm going to stop. And everybody was like, please do not stop. Like, you know, what's going to happen next? We're like really caught up with this, (laughs) the soap opera that you have been (laughs) delivering to us through your life. So I got data from that, which was that I was a good enough writer that I could get people interested in the stories that I was telling and that I wanted to be really conscientious (laughs) about where I was publishing them. Um, And I've been writing steadily ever since then. You know, I've always had some outlet in which I'm writing. And I I think what I've been honing, especially this past couple of years, has been how do I write for the collective? You know, how do I write for those who don't have a voice? How do I write stories that help people have more compassion for those of us who are trying to create change in the world? Because I think that there can be such, you know, we live in a vitriolic time. And there's so much um, tension just around basic things that I'm like, we shouldn't even be arguing about this. Like there's things that get politicized that shock me. You know, I'm like, I can't believe we're debating over whether we should protect the planet we live on. That's the only one we have. (laughs) 
that's wild, you know? And so trying to write about those things in a way that helps people feel the humanity of all of us inside of it, you know, that I'm like, we're all going to be impacted by this. Like, it's just a matter of time. Um, I want to write in a way that, that feels like a bell waking people up. And I want to write in a way that feels like a spell that we're casting together. Um, and I write every day. It's the one thing that I, I don't have to work hard at. Um, and I feel really blessed by that. Like some people don't love writing. Like they have to write. They know they have things to say. I am the opposite. I'm like, I love the act of writing. Every day that I get to be writing is a great day in my life. For several years now, you've been writing these nonfiction books and sort of gatherings of texts about your activist work. Um, And I have also heard you um, referring to yourself as a as a fiction writer and a poet who's sort of taking a break to write these nonfiction pieces. Mm-hmm. And I know you have fiction coming out this year or this year, right? Later this year? Well, I have um, last fall on September 7th, I released my first novella, which is called Grievers. And mm-hmm. um it's like my first long form fiction in the world. You know, I did the Octavia's Brood collection, which was like a collection of short stories. And I was included in that. But Grievers is my first time really stepping out into a longer form story. And I just turned in like, uh, like la- the week before last, um, the manuscript for the second novella in that trilogy. And the, that'll come out this fall. And then the third one, um, working on, and that'll come out the following fall. Oh, that's exciting. I didn't know they were a trilogy. Yeah. I mean, this was like the magic words, you know, um, they started a new imprint at AK Press, which is my publisher. And the new imprint was kind of inspired by the work of Octavia Butler, inspired by that visionary science fictional work. And they asked if I had anything um, and I, I did, I had this story that I've been working on a long time, which I thought was going to, I was like, we can cut this down and make it, you know, fit into whatever form. Um, and they came back with the magic words, like we would like to make it a trilogy. Um, so it's been so fun to get to write in this way, you know, where it's just like, oh, I don't have to stuff it all into, <laughs> you know, like one place there's room for the characters to really grow and develop and there's room for me as a writer to grow and develop as well yeah tell me if you would about visionary fiction yeah um i love this term i loved in the first time i encountered it was reading octavia's brood um and i'm was excited by it so i would love it if you could talk a little bit about what that term means to you and Mm -hmm. and why visionary fiction Mm -hmm. So my colleague, friend, Walida Imarisha, um, actually coined that term back in like, in like around 2010. Yeah. So she was invited by a magazine at that time called Left Turn Magazine, which was like a kind of leftist rag, you know, like a leftist newspaper. Um, they invited her to actually do an entire um, issue that was visionary fiction. And she invited me 
to write for that. I think I wrote a short piece around Ursula Le Guin. Um, but what we realized was that we had a deep shared love of Octavia Butler, like, you know, worshipful <laughs> fangirl, whatever you want to call it. We just felt like what she was doing was really important. And we wanted more people to read her work and also to get into the practice. You know, Octavia Butler was a black science fiction writer who gave us 12 novels and a collection of short stories. And there's actually a ton more content in her papers at the Huntington Library in Pasadena, California. So, you know, when when she was writing, she always said, I don't want to be the only one. I don't want to be the only one, the only black woman in this field, the only person writing these stories where there's young black women protagonists. I don't want to be the only one. And she passed away um, really suddenly in 2006. And I think for many of us who love her work, there was a real sense of, well, what do we do about that? <laughs> you know, what do we do about the fact that we were just starting to understand what she was telling us when she died? And we're meant to continue her work, you know, in some way. So visionary fiction was Walida's offer to that. And what it means to write visionary fiction is to write fiction that is intentional about the vision it's trying to move in the world, intentional about writing characters who are navigating power and resources and relationship in ways that get us out of the traditional um, single male white protagonist character, right? Like when we were book touring, um, my standing joke was like, Matt Damon could not be cast as the lead in any of our stories, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because at that time it was like, he was, he was the only one. He was just like, he was the doctor slash army general slash warrior slash astronaut <laughs> who was saving everyone. And, you know, no offense to him, you know, he's an environmentalist, so we're on the same team, but there was a real sense for me of how, how do we create a vision in which other people get to be protagonists of the experience of being an earthling, you know? Um, and it's really anti-capitalist, post-racist, post-racial imagination. Um, it's really about thinking about power and thinking about intentionally shifting the power dynamics that we take for granted. I was startled to learn that you had been writing Grievers for many, many years, yeah. even though it just came out last fall, because it's a, a book about a pandemic and it's a book about grief. Yes. What was it like putting out a book about grief and Black grief uh, last fall? Yeah, it was, um, well, it felt like a relief in some ways because I had been working on it for such a long time. And I, I kept having this sense of, the world is going to leave my story in the dust <laughs> because <laughs> everything that I'm writing is coming to pass um, as fast as I can get it on the page. So there was a real sense of relief um, initially that's just like, okay, thank God this is out um, while it's relevant. And it feels very relevant to be talking about apocalypse and to be talking about um, particularly plague and pandemic black death. Um, because I feel like that's what we're in right now. That's the period we're in is trying to figure out how as a species do we learn from the comfort that we have had with Black death? How do we learn to be uncomfortable with Black death? You know, so much of the call of Black Lives Matter 
is saying we should be really uncomfortable with the rate of black death. Like if we believe that black life matters, then we wouldn't be comfortable with this rate of death. And we know other people's lives matter because we can see how people respond when they go missing, when their children are harmed, when um, you know, an incidence of violence happens in their community or nation or their you know, location. We can tell how much their lives matter because of how the whole world responds to it. And so we can tell how little our lives matter because of how the world responds when things happen in our communities and how the world holds the patterns of harm that happen to us. And I think so much of what Grievers is about for me is once we recognize how much Black life matters, you know, um, what do we do with the grief that it has taken us to get here, to get to that clarity that our lives matter? And it's very much a story that about Black people in that question, but it's also, you know, I, one of the things I learned from Octavia was like, even when you're writing a story with a Black protagonist, we are all in a human story. And what we learn, what one part of the species learns is also always going to be wisdom for the whole, right? Because we're having, we're having a human experience together. And it's only um, these antiquated ideas of divisiveness that make us think that, <laughs> you know, there's a white story and a black story and a brown story and an Indian story and everything else. It's like, we're having a human story it's a biodivergent species story. And that's what I was trying to write and to tell. Yeah. And to that point, I, I was really intrigued by the idea that you are, you know, working on in this, in, in Grievers, about grief as this crucible mm-hmm. where, you know, that can lead either to destruction or possibly to destruction, possibly to a kind of transformation that it is this, um, this completely compressed Hmm. human experience that can kind of go a bunch of different ways, depending on how you're experiencing it and how you're maybe making choices moving through it. Um, that it just, to me, that kind of loops back to something we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, which was your decision to recognize the grief and betrayal you were feeling about this organization that you loved so much mm-hmm. and, and deciding to, to tell the truth about that. Yeah. Um, how is that practice for you going right now when it, there mm-hmm. is just so much, so much grief of all various kinds to be, you know, like we're, there are a lot of crucible, grief crucibles happening at the moment. How is that practice um, operating for you? I find it immensely relieving. I think that would be the best way I could, I could speak about it because grief shows us what we love and care about. And, you know, whoever gets grieved in a society, right? We're like, oh, we know wow, we really cared about Princess Diana, you know? Like we know when she died, we've watched a million films about her life. Like we are expected to grieve what happened to her. We know that, you know, and we can see who we care about. And so much of of what happens, um, what it feels like to be a Black person is to be like, oh, like, does anyone even notice when we die? And 
and why not? <laughs> you know, like what what happened? What happened along the way that that made it so that people that our lives can be taken with impunity? And and then if we try to bring it up, you know, if we're like, hey, like something really unfair happened here. Um, then people say, you know, we're being lazy or we're bringing up old shit or whatever it is, you know. So so much of it for me, I think it's going really really powerfully to speak openly about grief. What I get back from people so often is like kind of an exhale, a, you know, like a sigh of gratitude of like, thank God someone was willing to talk about this. And I've had a lot of people who have read Grievers um, kind of come back to me and, and say that it feels really accurate to their experiences of grief. Um, and, you know, I wrote it from my own grief, like the characters, many of them are direct um, inspirations <laughs> from people who I lost while living in Detroit. So, you know, even though I got to play with how I shaped the characters and, and you know, the story that they're in, the kind of skeletal structure of each person is someone that was alive when I moved to Detroit and was not by the time I left. Um, and that felt important to me because I, I heard somewhere once um, from a poet, actually, that when we honor our dead and speak their names, tell their stories, remember them, that we're actually nourishing them spiritually. Like, uh, you know, that's like we actually nourish the the whatever part of them is still them, no matter where they go, no matter where they are. And I thought about how many of my ancestors don't get to be nourished in that way because no one knows their name or no one knows what happened to them. No one knows how they died or why they died or when they died. No one knows, you know, they're in unmarked graves and their deaths, you know, really have been disappeared in a way. So part of what I wanted to do with this book and part of what I want to do in my life is figure out how do we tell the whole story? You know, when Black people are fighting and we're talking about grief and we're, you know, we're talking about a whole story of heartbreak that we're trying to figure out how to heal from. We really want to be whole, <laughs> you know, like we really want to be able to be whole in this place. And we want to know if that's possible. And the, the grief feels like a really important part of that. It's like, can y'all, can y'all hold what happened to us and, and what you were part of doing to us? You know, yeah. if you can, maybe we can move forward together. Right. Like when I think about the com the question of reparations and all of that, like to me, so much of what's being asked there is just like, can you go, can you like hold that you did this, your ancestors were a part of this and benefited from this. And if you're wealthy right now, you benefited from this. If you can hold that, like we can move forward. Um, and just like in any abusive relationship, like there's no chance of moving forward together if the person can't acknowledge that abuse has happened. Right. Right. So grief, the grief work that I'm doing around black people in this country, a lot of it is like, can we acknowledge that there's an abusive thing? It's still an abusive thing. And we, we're still trying to be free from it. Yeah. You know, we're not really in a place yet where white people in this country are, are prepared to look at the magnitude 
of the legacy of white supremacy yeah. in America and try to make reparations for that. And uh, the, the question that I want to ask has something to do with how you proceed yourself with the sort of the, the grief work and the healing that you need to go about doing even when, mm. you know, that you cannot move forward together because the, the conversation partner isn't, isn't there for you is yeah. kind of refusing yeah. and the extent to which your writing process helps you with that. Yeah. I'm well, you know, one of the things that's, that's helpful for me is I really pay attention to patterns. You know, as much as I notice specifics, I really feel patterns more, you know, pattern, pattern, patterns stand out to me. And one of the beautiful patterns around race work is that there's never been a time ever, 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 ever when there weren't people on the side of oppression, right? The people who are benefiting from the oppression, there's never been a time where there weren't people in that grouping who were able to say, this isn't right. Right? And I think that that is so important for who we are as a species and what we may or may not be capable of when it comes to healing. Because I think if there was a time, you know, if there was a time where it's just like every single white person was racist and none of them had any self-awareness that it was wrong, um, then I think we really could say, well, you know, there's no hope, <laughs> you know, but I think it's the opposite. You know, that gives me an immense amount of hope is that there's always been men who questioned patriarchy, even as they were benefiting from it. There have always been white people who questioned racism, even though they were benefiting from it. There have always been people who are benefiting from wealth, people who are born into wealth, who are like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, I have questions. And those questions are, are leading me into structural change work. And part of what I'm trying to do is create text that helps those who ask questions. Yeah. So I'm like, how do I write things like so emergent strategy? The main feedback I get from people about that book is, thank God you wrote this down because I already felt like this and I already thought like this, but no one had written it down in a book mm -hmm. and I needed yeah. that book so that I could have a sense of legitimacy for my own thinking. Right. Cause mm -hmm. that's, that's, you know, kind of how our society is structured, right? <laughs> it's not real if it's not in a book, you know? Um, and I love that. I love when people say that and I always believe them, right? Um, even though it was such an intimate experience, like learning about emergent strategy myself, right? It felt like I'm all alone in here <laughs> with the ants. But then coming out and having so many people say that to me, like, this is, this is the way. Um, I want to write more and more texts like that. So each of my texts feels like that to me, that it's like, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm paying attention. And I want to write things that give people a language or a toolbox for being honest about what is. And that feels really good. That feels really important to me. That feels like it'll take the rest of my life. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. <laughs>